Now imagine with me for a second that you are on an interview panel and the Lord Jesus Christ walks in, right, into your interview room. And you have ECV in front of you. What would you think would be written on that CV of the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you think would be written on it? Well, the mother of Christ was a poor and unwed teenager, teenage girl, mocked for claiming she conceived Christ by the Holy Spirit. Christ was adopted by a carpenter named Joseph, and he spent the first 30 years of his life in obscurity, really, swinging a hammer with his dad. At the age of 30, Christ began a public ministry of preaching, healing, feeding people, and, of course, befriending misfits, drunkards, thieves, rebels, and demoniacs. His career only lasted three years before he was put to death by shameful crucifixion among criminals. And just like thousands uh, before him and thousands after him. Christ never went to university. Uh, he was never a local MP or a councillor even. Uh, he never wrote a book. He was never married. Christ died homeless and poor. In fact, abandoned by his friends. So when we think of, in human terms, the CV of Christ looks like a failure, doesn't it? Well, in human terms, the life of Christ was a failure. And if that CV is all that we can say about Christ, then us gathering here this morning is a complete waste of time. A total waste of time. But we are here this morning joining millions, even billions, around the world because there is infinitely more to Christ than that human CV. The Bible teaches us that Christ is the only true extraordinary person who has ever lived, who has ever walked on this planet. And this truth about who Christ is, is taught throughout the Bible. And especially in the letter of Paul to the church of Colossae, this passage we read there in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, to particularly to verse 23. We've been studying this section because, of course, we're going through Colossians, as you know. And what Paul is doing here in this section is that he's explaining who Christ is and what our Lord Jesus Christ has come to do for us. And so far, just to remind you, we have learned five truths concerning Christ. The first truth we have learned is that Christ is God. Christ is God. That's in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. That's truth number one. The second truth we learned is that Christ is supreme over all things. The firstborn, verse 15 says, of all creation. That is ranked first. The third truth we learned is that Christ is our creator. That's in verse 16. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Christ is the author, is the agent, is the God of creation. Christ created all things for himself, for his praise and glory. That's truth number three. The fourth truth we learned is that Christ did not just create the world and walk away, 
Christ is our everlasting sustainer of all things. Christ is holding your breath right now. Verse 17. And he is before all things. That is timeless. And in him all things hold together. Truth number five, we learned it last week, which is Christ is the head of the church so that through the church he might be supreme over the new creation he has inaugurated. That's verse 18, isn't it? And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the first fruit even from the dead, and the head of the first fruit from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ, the church, we said, is a new humanity, isn't it? Christ is working through the church to usher in a new creation in which it is supreme or preeminent over all things, just as he is preeminent in the old creation. He will be preeminent in the new creation he's inaugurating. That's five truths. Today I want us to look at truth number six about Christ. And it's in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness, that is to say, all the totality of God, all of God was pleased to dwell. What is this verse teaching us? I think the key truth this verse is teaching us is simply this, and we'll see it clearly as we work through this text, is that Christ is the new temple of God. The person of Christ is a dwelling place. Of God among us. Christ is God living among us so that we can worship God in and through Christ. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There are two key words in that verse I want us to <clears throat> notice this morning. The first key word is dwell. Dwell. What does it mean to dwell? Well, to dwell means to have a permanent residence or a home or a dwelling to live in, right? Now, we are running a food bank at the moment. And there are people who come in into the food bank, right? Sometimes I ask them, the only question I tend to ask them about their address, I ask them, what is your postcode? And they just say, I don't have one, I'm just all over the place. They have no permanent home. They have no postcode we can write in. They just move from place to place. And of course they are like that because they are homeless. Right? And like you here this morning, everyone here has a roof over their head. You are not homeless. You have a place you call home. Right? Well, Paul is saying God calls the person of Christ home. That physical body of Christ is his dwelling place. And Paul repeats this later on in Colossians 2 verse 9. We'll look at that verse from a slightly different angle in the future. But it's similar and there's some interesting differences. He says this, for in him the whole fullness of deity that is the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. Now, just to be clear when Paul says God is Home in Christ is not suggesting that there was ever a time when Christ the man was without God. There was never a time when God was not our home in Christ. Christ the man was born God. God in Christ took on our human flesh at conception. 
inside the dark womb of the Virgin Mary. That's what we read at Christmas time. Luke 30, chapter 1, verse 34 to verse 35. Remember what the words of the angel? And Mary, well, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Well, how does the angel respond? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the technical word that we, are, we, we normally use to describe this indwelling of God in Christ, right, is what? Incarnation, right? That's the word, incarnation. This word incarnation literally means the infleshing. The infleshing. The incarnation is about God the Son, the second member of the Holy Trinity, willingly becoming something that he wasn't. He had already existed as God, but he decided to become a human being inside the womb of Mary. He added to his divine nature, our human nature, he became the God-man. Fully God and fully man. And it's so important we understand that Christ is one person with two natures. He has a divine nature because he is fully God. And he has a human nature because he is a full human being. And the two natures of Christ, these two perfect natures of Christ, sit side by side in Christ in perfect unity, and listen to me, without mingling. There's no mixture. Christ remains fully God. And he remains fully man. Christ is not two people in one. So important you understand that. Christ is one complete person with two natures. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this word dwell is important. It's, remembering, it's reminding us that God is at home in Christ. But there's also something else it's reminding us of. It's reminding us that God did not put on the human flesh like how we put on our clothes and then take them off. Right? No. Christ is forever our God-man. Right now, in heaven, there is a man there, a full human being, our Lord Jesus Christ who stands in heaven, sits in heaven, even reigning, still marked with the wounds of crucifixion. Now people like to say, I will believe in God if you show me the physical proof of God. The Bible says, God has given us the physical proof. The Bible says, look at Christ. He is God in our flesh. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the Bible's answer. Some people sometimes think of God as half-hearted. They believe in God, but they think he's real, but they believe God is too far removed from the complexities of life. Like, he's distant from us. He doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of what I'm facing in this world. That's what many people believe. Or relate to God like that. You know, a few years ago, I watched a movie called <coughs> Hostiles. I don't know if you've seen it. It is a Western drama which centers around a battle-hardened U.S. officer called Captain Joseph. 
Now, Captain Joseph is played by Christian Bale. And this Captain Joseph has been ordered in the film to take his mortal enemy, the Cheyenne war chief called Yellowhawk, and uh, to take Yellowhawk and his family back to their tribal lands in Montana. And he doesn't really want to do it, right? Because this is his mortal enemy. And the whole journey is quite interesting because the whole journey is full of suffering, bloodshed, and death, right? When you see it. But in the middle of these horrific scenes, we have some very revealing conversations in the film. You see, among the people in this afflicted group that, um, that Captain Joseph is taking to Montana, there's a widow there, a stricken widow called Rosalie Quaid, uh, who has just seen her family massacred in a raid. And so when the film, you know, when there's this brief pause in the film from the terror that is around them, Mrs. Quaid sits down with Captain Joseph. And as she's sitting, she notices that Captain Joseph is reading the Bible. And so she asks him, do you believe in the Lord, Joseph? The captain says, yes, I do. But he's been blind to what's going on out here for a long time. To which Mrs. Quirt replies, yeah, I can see what you mean. And she says that because, of course, she suffered. And at that moment, she feels God is blind. You know, as I watched that film, I thought to myself, this is how many people, this is how many, many of us live. We believe in God, but we struggle with God because we think God does not see us and our situation. We think God is not interested. Yes, he created the world, but he's not interested in getting involved in the mess of our life. And so what we do is we do what Captain Joseph does in the film. Uh, he relies on his inner strength. And his hero in the film is... Julius Caesar, right? The bravest man he knows. Many of us are like Captain Joseph. But Paul is saying the opposite here about God. The views of Captain Joseph are found wanting by Colossians 1 verse 19. Because this verse says, For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness was pleased to dwell. And we know from verse, chapter 2 verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of God dwells Bodily. In other words, God is not half-hearted. He has come in Christ, in our flesh, in the messiness of our lives. He has put on this flesh of ours. God, as one author says, has been born as one of us, placenta and all. He's been born as we are born in this world. All the mess of childbirth has gone through that. And he's lived the life as one of us is breathe the air, we breathe. You know, and, we, and often the world asks, where is God when human beings are going through evil and suffering? That's the question we ask. How does the Bible answer it? Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God is clothed in our humanity in Christ. God is with us in our mess of life. He has entered this world in Christ. And of course, which leads us to the obvious question, isn't it? How does God becoming man help us? Well, the answer is in the second word in verse 19. So I said the first key word is dwell, which is at the end of that sentence. The other key word is at the beginning of the sentence. The word is for. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The word for there is a connecting word, right? It can also be translated as because. Because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why because? Well, the word for is explaining, is written to explain what is in verse 18. That's why we need to go through the Bible verse by verse. Look at what's in verse 18, and which we looked at last week. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything it might be preeminent, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We can't understand verse 19 without understanding verse 18. In verse 18, Paul has taught us that Christ is the head of the church. And we said, Christ became the head of the church by raising us with him from the dead. That's what we looked at last week. We said the resurrection of Christ is a dawn of a new humanity. Uh, All those who are trusting in Christ share in a new resurrection life with Christ Jesus as our living head. But what qualifies Christ to be the head of this new humanity? The church. How can you and I be sure that Christ is really our preeminent head? Well, the answer is verse 19. Because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul is saying Christ is the head of the new humanity because Christ is now, you see, the new meeting place between God and man. In Christ, the two natures sit in perfect unity. And by Christ being our God-man, is now the new temple through which we access God. That's why when Paul comes back to this truth in Colossians 2 verse 9, he emphasizes the body element, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in that body. In the Old Testament, God told Moses to put up a tent of meeting or a tabernacle in which the people of Israel can come before God to worship him. Now you remember that the tabernacle was really meant as an earthly copy of heaven, the home of God. And when they entered this tabernacle, therefore, it was meant to be like a, a symbol that they were entering heaven itself, right? Now within the tabernacle, if you may remember your Old Testament very well, there was a special place called the most holy place. This is a place in which the high priest, only the high priest, entered there once a year. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest came to this most holy place and he was bearing sacrifices for himself and for everyone to offer these blood sacrifices to God. And it was in this most holy place, you see, where sinners met God. The tabernacle, if you like, was a symbolic home of the holy living God living with sinful covenant people. Now we know as we read through the Old Testament that the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, wasn't it? A more permanent structure. But even within the temple, there was still the most holy place there. Because that place was a dwelling place of God. Where am I going with this? Well, in this verse, what Paul is really getting at is this. We are being told that the physical temple has been superseded. God the Son is now pleased to dwell as one of us. God, his home in Christ. 
For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Paul is saying, Christ is the head of this new humanity because Christ is the temple of God where rebellious sinners can now live with God forever. The body of Christ is a temple of God because it houses God himself and allows all who trust in Christ to truly worship God as his new people in this new creation. And Christ is fit to be this temple because Christ is both God and man. But the question is this, how does the God-man Christ function as our temple in practice? What's, how has Christ become, I mean, we know how Christ has become our temple, he's both God and man, but how does the temple work? How does he work as a temple? Well, the answer for that is verse 20, which follows to verse 22. And this is the wonder of going through the Bible verse by verse, because in verse 20, we meet another connecting word. Do you see the connecting word in verse 20? So we have a connecting word at the beginning of verse 19, and we have a connecting word at the beginning of verse 20. Verse 20 starts like this, and, and, that connects us to what's been said before. Through him, it's explaining the means through which Christ is our temple now, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then he goes on in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, again, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is Paul saying? Well, what Paul is saying is that Christ, you see, reconciles repentant sinners to himself by his crucified body. The crucified body of Jesus is our new temple. To put it another way, the crucified body of Christ is the living door through which we now enter the very presence of God. And this truth should be familiar to you if you are very familiar with the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 22, explains it infinitely better than I'm able to explain it. It simply says this. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 22, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, of course, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. What's the curtain? That is through his flesh, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews and Colossians are making the same point. Christ, by his death and resurrection, remember, is not just a crucified body, it's a living way. Hebrews is emphasizing the resurrection, just as Paul emphasizes it in Colossians. Christ, by his death and resurrection, enables all who trust him to directly commune with God. Christ is not a dead temple. If death was the end, for Christ, if Christ only died on the cross, we wouldn't have access to God. Christ had to rise from the dead to be a living temple. He is the living way in Hebrews 10 verse 20. He is the resurrected firstborn in Colossians 1 
verse 18. And of course the question is, why do we need the death and resurrection of Christ to be with God? Why do we need that? Well, I hope you know the answer. It's obvious. We need Christ because God is holy and pure. There's no stain on the record of God. God cannot allow sinners to enter the holy of holies. cannot allow sinners to live with him without a sacrifice. Sin provokes something deep inside God to severely punish and burn anything else that has sinned. in it. God is like the sun. There is no shadow of darkness in him. And anything that comes to him that has any darkness in it, it immediately burns up. That's why the people couldn't, in the Old Testament couldn't approach God. They had to go through an intermediary, a high priest. Now the problem is that all of us are sinners by nature, aren't we? There's no one here who never sins. And it's important you understand that sin is not only something you do, or even you don't do, because we can sin by not doing, omission. Whether it's something we do or something we don't do, Sin is our identity. Sin is who you are. Listen, sin is not simply the clothes we wear. Sin is our skin. Just as you cannot change the color of your skin, you, you cannot change you being a sinner. You will always be a sinner until you are transformed in glory. It is who we are. All of us are born in sin, original sin. And we die as sinners. None of us are good enough to live with God. Listen, you are not a good person before God. And most importantly, because you're not, you, you, you're not a good person before God, the wrath of God is on you. All of us in this room, by default, are on the train bound for hell to suffer the wrath and judgment of God. That's what the Bible says. And there are no stops on this train. You can't get off. You can't jump out. You can't change the direction. The only hope for you is for Christ to enter that train and take your place. And that's what the Bible says Christ has done. He has come to swap places with you on that hellish train. Christ is God who suffered on the cross to bear in his body the wrath and judgment that you deserve. If you're trusting in Christ, you are now off that train bound for hell. All your sins, past, present, and future have been wiped clean. You are now living with God forever. You have full and immediate access to the throne of grace. Christ is your new temple in whom you live and access God if you truly trust in Christ. In Christ, you are living with the everlasting, unchanging, self-existent, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-gracious God. Beloved, if we're in Christ, we are not just home with God. God is pleased to dwell with us. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased, thrilled to bits. To dwell with us. Beloved, the incarnation is not something Christ did with the frown on his head or with some boredom. He did it thrilled, joyful to take on our human flesh. 
You know, many people we live with are not pleased to live with us. Some husbands cannot wait to escape to the pub or withdraw to themselves, right? Some wives cannot wait to get away and watch a bit of telly and their favorite shows. They live with you, but they are not pleased to live with you. Even worse, over time, some couples can't stand each other and they end up divorcing. A few years ago, I read a story of a woman in California who divorced her husband of 22 years after she found out he voted for Donald Trump. That happens, isn't it? That is all it took, right? And of course, families were split up by Brexit and other things. But here we read that God is not like us. He is pleased to share life with us in the person of Christ. For in him or the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God is genuinely thrilled that Christ is your temple. Christ, as I said, did not put on our humanity kicking and screaming. He put on it, if you like, with a smile on his face. And this passage is saying to every true believer here this morning, put away any idea that God loves you, but he doesn't like you very much. Because God has been pleased to dwell with you in Christ. Put away any idea that God is like a relative who claims to love you, but doesn't want you to be around him. Put away any idea that God is some distant distant parent who shows you grace in letting you live in the house, but he doesn't care to spend much time with you. You know, many of us have have these adopted pictures, distorted pictures of God, of a God who loves us in the abstract, but is not pleased to dwell with us. And the reason we have that is because of how we grew up, really, for many of us. And our background can come and shape how we see God in destructive ways. We must put away all those foolish ideas. We must rest in the truth of this passage. God in Christ loves you deeply. He not only acts loving, he is thrilled to dwell with you. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what's the application? What's the application? The application, surely, is the obvious question. What about you? Are you super thrilled that Christ is your temple? Are you thrilled that you who deserve the wrath of God are now in the very presence of God? God was pleased to dwell with you. Are you pleased to dwell with him? Are you thrilled that right now there is no barrier between you and God? Are you thrilled to bits that you and God now share the same home forever? Maybe you're asking, shall I help me out here? How can I know I am thrilled to dwell with God as he is thrilled to dwell with me? Well, just ask yourself those three questions at the bottom of your outline. Question number one, ask yourself, are you growing in killing sin in your life? Are you growing in killing sin in your life? If you are thrilled to live with God, you will increasingly grow to hate what God hates. The more you are thrilled to live with God in Christ, the more ugly sin becomes. You now see sin for what it is. Sin is stabbing the God, God who dwells with us in Christ in his holy chest. You know, Charles Spurgeon says, If Christ has died for me, 
and godly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin, says Charles Spurgeon. I cannot thrive with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? How can I displease him when he is pleased to dwell with me? We might paraphrase. Let us remember that those who hug and cuddle their sins are not thrilled with Christ. And most likely they do not know him. I'm not saying we can never get rid of sin, but are we growing in killing sin, in hating sin in our lives? That's the first question. The second question, briefly, are you growing in prayer? Those who are thrilled to live with God love talking to God. They are not the same when they haven't prayed. You know, if a husband said he enjoyed living with his wife, but he never talks to her, is that husband really thrilled to live with his wife? Well, we know the answer, don't we? No. If we are thrilled to live with God, we want to talk to God. So the question this morning is, do you long to talk to God? Are you a person of prayer? Do you have a real growing hunger to be on your knees? Are you pleased to dwell with God? Is there a growing desire to pray? If there isn't, then no matter what comes out of your mouth, you may claim to be head for heaven, but you, that's not looking like that at the moment. Because you're not pleased to dwell with God. And the, the point, the reason is that your heart has probably grown cold. You have seriously backslidden, beloved. And you must get right with God. The final question there on your outline is, are you growing in resting on God in every circumstance? I am not saying that we can never become perfect without any anxiety or panic in life. Look, we are not the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read the Gospels, we see Christ never panics. Have you noticed that? He's never panicking. Do you remember the raging storm with Christ sleeping in the boat? Right? The disciples start panicking. They wake up. They wake the Lord up. How does the Lord react? Well, he's more concerned about their lack of faith than he is concerned about the storm. And I imagine the Lord just getting up from sleep and he's like, peace be still, and he gets back to bed. He never panics. Do you remember when Lazarus died? Right? Christ hears the news, doesn't it? That Lazarus has died. Or at least Lazarus has been unwell, deeply unwell. I have to double check that. That Lazarus is very unwell. How does he respond? Christ says, our brother has fallen asleep. But then he delays the journey, doesn't he? <laughs> It doesn't go back immediately. Christ never panics. You watch through the crucifixion. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, isn't it? He didn't even open his mouth. Christ never panics. Now, I'm not saying we'll be like that in this flesh, right? We'll never be like Christ until we see him in glory. We'll never be perfect like Christ. That's what we should be heading to, but we'll never be going to be perfect like that. We're going to be realistic, right? But if we are true followers of Christ, we should be growing towards that. There should be some evidence that we are panicking less and less in our lives. 
The growing delight of God dwelling with us in Christ should have this impact of making you panic less and less. There should be less and less anxiety in your life because you know that God is pleased to dwell with you in Christ and is looking after you. And so this morning you must ask yourself this, isn't it? Is this true for you? Are you seeing evidence of being less and less anxious? Are you becoming less anxious about your studies at school because you know your father is looking after your whole life? Are you becoming less anxious about being single because you know your father knows all your longings, including the longing to be married? Are you becoming less anxious about your finances even though prices are through the roof now? You're still less anxious than you were last year. Why? Because you know God is caring for you in every situation. And he has proved himself to care for you over the years. Are you becoming less anxious about your health? Are you becoming more and more trusting of God, whichever way your health or the health of the loved one goes? Not because you trust the doctors, but because you know your father holds all things. You are learning to trust him. Are you becoming less anxious about your children? Not because you have become a better parent. You've just been reading a book which seems to have all the answers. No, not because of that. But because you are growing to rest more on God. Now, these are painful questions, aren't they, to ask us ourselves. But we must examine ourselves. Remember, the trajectory is the key. Less and less. We must examine ourselves. Is there a growing evidence that we are thrilled that Christ is our temple? Are we growing in killing sin in our lives? Are we growing in delighting to come to God in prayer? Are we growing in resting in God at all times? We must ask ourselves this. What's the direction, beloved? What's the direction? We need to examine ourselves. For the simple reason that it is not a small sin to live as if God doesn't live with us in Christ. When we live like that, we are making a mockery of the death of Christ. Living like Christ is not our temple, it's a denial of the blood of Christ. It's a denial that Christ is our high priest. It's a denial of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we rely on ourselves, when we as believers, we are not different from the world, ever anxious as the world is, well, we are not, we are standing against this Colossians 1 verse 19. It's a serious thing. And of course, we are robbing ourselves, aren't we, of peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, as, is, as they say. This morning, go to God, right? Admit you are not as thrilled as you should be by this truth. Repent of your coldness. Ask him to refresh your heart with joy. Ask God to help you grow in believing this truth so that you can truly give thanks to God for living with you in Christ, for Christ being our temple. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This truth is our bottomless comfort. God is now pleased to dwell with us in Christ. We are now home with God in Christ, secure in his embrace. In our comfort in life is not our family or our health or our bank balances or our popularity or our intelligence or even the church. The church is not our comfort. Our comfort is that we have found refuge in the wounds of Christ. 
we have found refuge, a home, in the crucified and resurrected body of Christ. He is our temple. 